Okay. Hi guys, I'm Neil. It's me. I'm gonna <clears throat> share with you some some stuff about um, Olga and I. Many of you know this. Olga and I got married. Olga's my wife. Twelve years. Uh, we met um, in Los Angeles. She came to a training that I was giving. I was uh, doing training for teachers in LA Unified. And uh, she was one of the people who came to the training and we got to talking. And uh, a year later, uh, I asked her out and we moved in and got married. So it's been a wonderful marriage. Um, uh, about Five years ago, Olga unfortunately started to feel some um, numbness in the right side of her body, and the uh, we didn't know what it was, and so we took her to the doctor. And of course, after quite a bit of testing and, and MRIs and CAT scans, and they discovered what's called a cavernous malformation um, in in her brain. So a cavernous it's basically some capillaries that are just you know sitting there basically it looks like a little raspberry in her brain um, and it's called cavernous because it was in the middle of her brain it was actually on the stem of the brain so um, she had that excised but because of the severity of the operation you know major brain surgery not just a little brain surgery um, it, uh, thankfully it was quite successful but it was sitting you know the, the malformation had to be excised from the stem. And so apparently there was some central nerve damage um, because she did suffer a little bit of a paralysis in her in her uh, upper, in her lower brow. So, you know, causes some, some minor blurring, double vision and things of that nature, which we compensate for. But she got to experience what's called neuropathy. And I learned about neuropathy, which I guess it's just nerve pain. Um, it was going all up and down her right side of her body and, and we just assumed after consultation with pain experts and the surgeon and other folks that, you know, it's just neuropathy that came as a result of, you know, a pretty serious brain injury. But, you know, she takes some medications and she's able to handle it and she's gotten used to it and copes with it and, um, you know, we've been doing well. Unfortunately, though, the hits just keep on coming. So. Um, a while ago, um, she started to feel a little bit of weakness in her in her right hand, and so we just assumed, okay, well maybe there's some, you know, that's what happens when you suffer. This was her brain surgery was five years ago, so that's what happens when you, you know, have major brain surgery and you have neuropathy. Five years of pain in the right side of your body is probably going to damage your body and your nerves somehow. And so we took her to a specialist to see, shoot, maybe we can get this nerve taken out or something you know what what's happening why is it why is um why is it getting worse and worse you know and so they did some testing and did a blood panel on her and um still couldn't figure out what was going on i mean we went to all over the place we saw a whole bunch of different folks about it and then her kaiser neurologist called her and said that she wants he wants her to go take what's called an emg or uh, i think it's electromyography or myogram or something so it's like it's a muscle conduction test where they see how are the muscles interacting with nerves 
and you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't think anything of it, you know, just another task rate. Maybe he has some theory, he thinks he knows what's going on. One of her doctors sent us some interesting information about a, a syndrome called chronic regional pain syndrome, which met her exact um, indicators, all of the things that she was presenting, you know, met, met it perfectly. So we said, ah, that's what it must be, it must be chronic regional pain syndrome. Um, so um, then her doctor called her and said she, he needs to see her about the results of the the um, the exam. So when we got when we got to the doctor's office, <laughs> um, you know they did a uh, another exam on her to see what's going on with her muscle and her um, musculoskeletal uh, system. You know you know she she had, she was showing some weakness on the right side of her body, of course, because well that's what problem was you know that's why we were there to see but he did a, an exam again and then he um, had us both sit down and um, he um, he went over some stuff and said the bottom line is that um, he and his colleague believe that um, my wife has um, um, a myotrophic lateral sclerosis here you can probably tell bad words um, so amyotrophic lateral sclerosis so amyotrophic meaning um, uh, muscular and lateral meaning upper and lower motor neuron uh, and I you know, suddenly learned quite a bit about neurology so uh, I can tell you a little bit about that, and then sclerosis, you know, the, the deadening. It's Lou Gehrig's disease, basically. Um, so, and and basically, the doctor told her she has two, three years left, um, and that she should quit her job immediately, apply for disability, you know, get your affairs in order. Basically, saying, all right, you know. Love the ones you're with because this is all that's left. Um, there's no cure for ALS. There's no disease. That's there's no there's no there's two treatments, and if they work, they may extend your life by three to nine months. They mostly say three to six, but it's incredibly expensive stuff, and the insurance companies eventually don't even cover it. And the fact is, in some people who have ALS who take these FDA-approved drugs, it actually increases the progression of the drug, so uh, the disease. So what is it? So what is it? It's basically um, what's happening is that. Um, so when when I'm not a psychologist, but I like the stuff. So I've read a lot about it over the years. So definitely don't take my word for it. But this is, I think, what's happening. This is what is happening. So you have a, a desire, right? You say I want to, I want to touch that flower, right? Well, okay, better. <laughs> I want to touch that box. <laughs> <laughs> I want to <laughs> touch I don't want to touch anything all right but I, I want to lift that cup how about that <laughs> let's just keep it nice and uh, so I want to pick up that cup right 
So there's some weird stuff that happens, right? But generally speaking, the, the, the thinking is that the brain then says, okay, we need to send a signal. So the brain then sends a signal via what's called the upper motor neuron. Um, and that connects, it's like a long, just think of it as a wire connecting the brain to the spinal cord, right? The big long thing. And so then you've got other nerves coming out from that spinal cord that go out to your arms and legs and, you know, all the stuff that happens in the rest of your body, right? And the, those the, those nerves travel along what's called the lower motor neurons. Right? Those are the lower motors. So upper motor to the spine, from the brain to the spine, lower motor from the spine to the everything else. So, um, so if you want to pick up the cup, the brain sends a signal, right? And then hit, that hits the spinal cord and then the spinal cord goes, oh, okay, in order for that action to occur, I need to send a signal down these lower motor neurons so that the arm can actually grip the cup, pick it up and come over and drink it. Now there's actually, before I go further, one of the things that I learned many, many years ago, in, interestingly enough, having some fascination with this field, <laughs> That's, that's probably a whole nother video. Um, um, they've done tests on that exact process that I was saying. You have a desire to pick up a cup, the brain sends a signal to the spinal cord. Well, it turns out that, um, so I, from what I recall, what, what they're basically doing is they're timing how fast it takes for you to have the thought and for the the brain to send signals to the motor to the the central nervous system and then the central nervous system pushing out to the rest of the limbs right and what they discovered is that you would think the sequence would be desire brain creates signal and fire signal but that's not what happens this is what happens apparently according to some uh, researchers in UC San Diego is that it goes like this. It goes, the brain creates a, uh, a, a, a signal, fires it, and then you have the desire to tell the brain to send that signal. So literally, the brain apparently knows that you want to pick up the cup before you know you want to pick up the cup. Anyway, so what ends up happening um, after you send that signal is you grab the cup. Well, with amyotrophic uh, lateral sclerosis is that those wires are cut, right? Basically, um, it's like a, imagine you have a marionette, you know, you're, you've got a little puppet, right? And uh, you've got strings attached to the little puppet that's dancing and you are the brain in this metaphor and you want to tell the you want to tell the marionette, okay, move your head this way, and you move your hand, but the strings are not attached. So you're sending a signal, but the hand is, head is not moving. And uh, eventually, the when the signals aren't going to the muscles, the muscles go, hello, we're here, what's, what's going on? Um, what are we supposed to do? And there's no signal coming back, so they start freaking out, right? So they start doing these things first called fasciculations, which is they start to spasm, and then they go into serious spasms, and eventually atrophy, and then the muscles die. And as the muscles die, you lose functionality. And as you lose functionality, you know, eventually, um, 
you know, you're confined to a wheelchair, you know, and, you know, it spares your eye muscles for some reason. It's interesting. Uh, but every other muscle over a period of time starts to die, and as the muscles die, um, you lose functionality, and eventually your head, you know, throat, because these are muscles right here, right? And so these muscles um, have to work for you to be able to swallow, you know, your spittle and the whatnot. And so it becomes difficult to swallow and eventually you start choking on your own spittle. And eventually your diaphragm, which is the muscle that lets us breathe, um, also starts to um, denerve. Um, so needless to say, our lives have changed completely, right? Um, you know, it's, it's the stuff of movies, right, and plays where, you know, you're in an office and somebody tells you you've got a few years left to live. And it's amazing how people um, react in those moments. And it's usually not at all how you think you would react. <laughs> and sometimes it's exactly how you think you'd react. It was a quite an experience, quite an experience. Um, so, where do we stand now? Um, so, in the wonderful world of ALS, there are levels of diagnosis. This is the problem with ALS, um, is that it's hard to diagnose. Most of the time, it takes six months to a year to even diagnose it and say it's ALS because it could be a lot of things it could be metal poisoning Lyme disease it could be this thing we thought Olga had this complex regional pain syndrome it could be a lot of different kinds of things right um, it could be muscular sclerosis it could be uh, excuse me multiple sclerosis it could be muscular dystrophy it could be a bunch of neurodegenerative diseases it's hard to determine whether it's ALS or not because there's no such thing there's no biomarker well not yet. I think um, I have a maybe in a future video I'll tell you all about it. But right, technically, officially, there's no biomarker, and it basically means that there's no way to know. You know, it's just you can't test for it. You can't draw blood and say, "Oh, look, that marker is past this number," which means he probably has this, or she probably has that. There's no indicator, and it's it's hereditary in five to ten percent of the population, and ninety percent of the population, or what they call who get ALS, is called sporadic because there's no freaking way of knowing why it is that they got it. But for five to ten percent, they are, they have identified a couple of um, genes that. Um, if you have it, the likelihood of you getting ALS is going to be higher. Interestingly enough, ALS also seems to be in higher incidence with um, um, the military, and, you know, the men and women of the military, as well, interestingly, as American football players. <laughs> and uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that, too, which I'll be sharing with you in the future. But um, so we don't know what the hell is going on with this thing. And there have been uh, trials and trials and drugs and drugs and methods and procedures and there's homeopathic remedies out there that in fact many of them are really interesting and um but there's no cure that we don't know what's happening or you can't cure something if you don't know why it's happening and they haven't been able to figure it out they still haven't been able to figure out what's going on um it's 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 a um, very interesting mystery obviously so um Obviously, you can imagine if this would happen to you, you, you know, you would 
be reeling from the shock. I'm sure you can, I mean, nobody takes this sitting down. This, some people react differently. I heard about a family that um, got the um, diagnosis from their doctor and, and they had a conversation with the doctor and said, ALS, that's the one, but there's no cure for ALS. And the doctor said, yeah, there's no cure for it. And they said, okay. And then they all got up and they went out into the lobby and nobody said a word and they just opened the elevator. Everybody apparently got in the elevator, went down, nobody said a word and they got outside the doctor's office and said, what do you guys want to do? And they go, let's go to lunch. And they went to lunch <laughs> because, you know, what do you do? There's nothing to do. You, you, there is no alternative. You, there, there is no cure. It's basically a death sentence, but, but not now, not immediate, over a period of time. So, um, um, so you either get busy living or dying, right? So, um, um, you know, we're gonna do the living thing. So um, I put my digital literacy skills to use. Sorry, those of you I work with might get a little chuckle out of that, but um, um, and you know, got into it, man. Find out what can we do, and and I have some fantastic news that there is some real, um, a real solution. I used to say there's real hope. It's not hope. It's an actual solution because I think we're this close. We're this close. Here's what's happening. Um, there are two treatments available for ALS patients. Um, one is called Rilutech, Rilutech, or Rilutech, or something like that, and, um, and that's a pill you take. And then another one is called Radicaba, right? So the pill thing, the the Rilutech thing, which has multiple names, uh, came out uh, apparently a couple years ago, and. Um, you know, first of all, it doesn't work for everybody, and for the people that does work, it basically expands their life, you know, minimally, like maybe three months or so. But then about a year ago, the Japanese did some clinical trials with a new product called Radicava, which again has multiple names, but um, um, they did it with, uh, they did clinical trials with all Japanese people, and um, they say, look, man, it's working. We're able to extend life, you know, six months on average, three to nine months, basically. And, um, the FDA um, fast-tracked that little sucker. So we went through its phase one trial, which was basically to prove that it's not poison, it's not gonna kill you. Um, and once it started its phase two trial, the phase two, which is to see whether, you know, if, if it does what they said it does. Um, so basically it went from zero to market in six months, I think, I think that's the timeline. I'm probably wrong about the exacts of that, but it's something in that range. So what I'm trying to say is that the FDA was able to do something about fast tracking something that was able to extend life for, you know, people that are, you know, trapped in their own bodies for just a couple more months, right? Which is better than nothing as far as I'm concerned, you know? Um, same thing apparently happened in the eighties and nineties. Um, you know, when the AIDS epidemic was happening, the major drug cocktail that came out, again, I might be wrong about my facts, so please 
anyway, um, it was, I think it was called AZT, and it was working for a majority of the people that contracted HIV, but not for all of them. And then like a whole bunch of new drugs were developed. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a drug that came out, and I can't remember what it was called. It was Stuve or something. I don't know. I'll find it. But um, that was working for the other 20% of the people that AZT wasn't able to support. And so the FDA, again, put it on a, uh, an alternative track. So they do have investigational tracks. The FDA says, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, if we see that there's a drug that passes phase one, meaning it's not poison, it'll, it'll be fine, you know, and we can see that there's some, even though phase two isn't necessarily designed specifically to see whether or not the treatment is efficacious or not, but at least we can see, hey, look, it's working. Why would you not let people who have a terminal disease who are dying anyway, sign away and say, look, I, if it kills me, it kills me, I'm dying anyway, and try it, right? And so, um, that's what happened with that and apparently it worked out really really well so why am i telling you all that here's why i'm telling you all that it's because um there is a company out of uh new york and israel it's, their headquarters are in israel but they do much of their work out of new york um, and california interestingly and it's called brainstorm um, cell therapeutics and um, these guys and gals, small company, 35 people, have um, potentially discovered something that's about to change the world. You know, this isn't quackery. What I'm telling you about now is not quackery. There's a lot of quackery. This is not quackery. Yes, it is stem cell information I'm gonna tell you about, but it's not quackery. Um, it's legit, it's legit. I'll, I'll explain the whole thing. Um, so, um, what Brainstorm has done is that they've developed a technology, what they call a technology platform called Neuron. Neuron, like neuron, and then own, like my own body, my own cells, new own, my own neuron, my own, Jesus, all right, settle out, neuron, that's what it's called. So, um, um, and here's, here's, what, here's what it is. It's a technology that allows um, um, the, a hospital to drill into your hip <laughs> yeah <laughs> and aspirate bone marrow which i believe is a process where they must there's some air or i don't know what they do i think aspiration is about breathing so i'm assuming they're pushing something in there whatever it is or pulling something out whatever it is they're getting um what they call mesenchymal stromal cells <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful word isn't it mesenchymal let me say it again. Mesenchymal. Mesenchymal. Um, mesenchymal stromal cells are basically just like adult stem cells. They're not embryonic cells, right? They're your own adult stem cells. And if you know stem cells, they're types of biological things in our body that grow things, right? So we have cells and we have stem cells. And those stem cells create cells. You know, they're like the stem or the birth or the generation of cells, right? So stem cells kind of like say, look, here's the pathway you need to go, rest of you stem, uh, rest of you cells. And for you, you ear cells, you gotta go this way, right? So stem cells kind of set the pace and the direction for cells to develop into body parts and things of that nature. So they take that stuff and they um, put it through, they take their your own stem cells and uh, they put it through a process, their neuron process, that basically separates the mesenchymal cells from the other kinds of cells, right? So it kind of like purifies them, right? And so separates like fat and things of that nature. And then it takes the 
um, what they refer to as neurotrophic factors. <laughs> the neurotrophic factors um, and amplifies them. Um, so basically what it is is that the, these particular stem cells have these neurotrophic factors and in essence nourish heal neurons or other kinds of cells and what they're able to do is they're able to multiply these cells like by orders of magnitude and more importantly they're able to cryopreserve the cells right which will be important for later and i can explain that um so so then they take it and they say hey sit down get on your side and they do a spinal tap a lumbar puncture basically and i've had that before and it's not fun it's no good but it's not you know, if you're doing it in a reputable place they do it well and um, but you know the it's the bone marrow aspiration that's the painful part really but anyway they squeeze this new amped up purified um uh, stem cell into your spinal cord, right? So that it basically juices up with all of the, the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and um, um, the idea is that those neurotrophic factors then kind of envelop the, the damaged neurons and bring them back to life. And um, it's working. So they did the phase one, they proved it doesn't kill people, and they did the phase two trial. They did the phase two trial in three different um, hospitals. Um, one at, I want to say, the Mayo Clinic, one um, at Mass General Hospital, and anyway, three hospitals, who cares? All right, so, and um, they had, like, how many people were in that trial? 48 people, I believe, that they were able to include into the trial. And they were able to demonstrate, and I can give you more information, more details if you're actually interested, but they were able to demonstrate that with this application, uh, I, um, I'm going to say majority, I'm not sure if that's the actual language that they use, but a lot of the people that went through the trial basically not only slowed down the progression of this horrible disease, but it was able to stop it and bring the functions back. In, in some people. There was a fighter pilot, Matt Bellina, that basically um, got ALS, fought for his country, got ALS, and um, um, he got the neurone treatment because he fought for it. He helped pass something called the Right to Try law, which you may have heard about in the news over the past several months. Um, President Trump is making a, you know, not making a big deal out of it, but he's pointing it out. He's something that's proud of, and I'm proud of him for doing that too, for saying, hey, yeah, if you look it up, right to try. It's basically saying, hey, look, man, if you're dying and there's a there's a drug that might kill you, but might save you, you have a right to try that drug because you're gonna die anyway, you know? And so uh, he took that drug, Matt Bellina, and he went from being confined to a wheelchair for two and a half years to being able to um, you know, walk, work out, bike ride. Um, another guy, same exact thing. I'll, I'll, I'll put some, if you're interested, I'll put some links to videos where you can see people who are coming out and saying, hey, it's working. It worked. Um, but there are a lot of complications involved with, with what's happening, right? The major one being that um, for whatever reason, we as a, as a I'll say a science community as a, as a country haven't been able to get our act together on this, but it's just, this is the crux of the issue is that um, ALS is the only remaining 
um, incurable disease that because of its severity, the Food and Drug Administration requires a double-blind placebo, a one-to-one randomization, which is basically like saying, look, here's how it's going to go. We're going to recruit 200 people, right, who have a very specific criteria. They have to be under 60 years old. The onset of the symptoms should have began about no more than 24, 25 months ago. You have to be able to breathe at a, at a particular level because a lot of ALS patients, again, sadly, the way you actually die is you suffocate um, because you lose your, your, your diaphragmatic muscle. Um, so you have to be able to breathe at a certain level. So what happens is if you know, they recruit those 200 people, but because it's a one-to-one randomization, 100 people will get the treatment and 100 will not. They'll get a placebo, which basically means they'll get water. You know, when they're injecting the thing into their spinal column, it won't be the neuron treatment. And it's three lumbar punctures and it's 14 visits across a nine month period. Each one of those lumbar punctures, risk of infection, risk of paralysis, risk of death every single time, you know, and not to mention the bone marrow aspiration, which basically makes you feel like you got kicked by a mule in the back for a couple of days, you know. Um, I've never had a bone marrow aspiration, but that's how I've heard of it. I've heard it's, it ain't fun. Um, so imagine sacrificing at great cost. Imagine all the people from all around the world that start flying to Boston, you know, or flying to having to come to, they have, you have to foot your own bill for travel. You have to foot your own bill for everything, really. They'll foot the bill for the procedure and the drug, but you have to foot the bill for doing it 14 times, you know? So it's a real sacrifice, man. It's a real sacrifice. And after you do it, you don't get it. Imagine that situation. How is that ethical even? In fact, they've stopped doing that for cancer. I learned from this guy, Mark, excuse me, Mike Hansen. He was saying that it's what he has learned is that they don't allow placebo drugs in cancer research anymore because they consider it to be unethical. You know, people are dying and we're doing placebo trials. Well, the mother of all diseases still requires one-to-one randomization. Nonsense. Nonsense, right? So um, that's why we're trying to raise some money. We need to raise some money because there are um, other promising stem cell-like um, procedures that are being done in Israel, China, Mexico. Um, and these are, these are I'm talking about legitimate places, like major hospitals, right? I'm not talking about like, you know, the little strip mall that says, hey, gene therapy for a low, low price of $25,000 will, will fix your incurable disease. You know, I'm talking about major doctors. I'm talking about major institutions um, like the Ichilov um, in, uh, in Tel Aviv, major medical system, world renowned. Um, and, and in fact, what I learned is a lot of these places that are offering these um, neuron-like treatments um, are actually housed, all, most of them by American doctors. Um, Apparently, the ones in Mexico are almost completely American doctors. So, um, uh, and, but you got to foot that bill, right? And um, it isn't a one-time shot, right? Um, it, it, these treatments slow down the progression, um, but once you stop the treatments, the progression starts back up again. Um, so our plan isn't to just create a you know a funding stream so we can you know 
take Olga to Israel so that she can get these, you know, um, treatments. No, our plan is to buy time. It's to buy time. Because um, based on my research, my interactions, the interviews I've done in learning about what we're going to do to save my wife's life, I've come to learn that um, the FDA is going to approve this neuron thing. And my best estimation right now, being July 1, uh, 2019, is that the enrollment for the phase three trial will conclude by the end of summer, which means that it's at that point, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that the brainstorm organization can actually apply for final approval. And then it'll take about 11 months to figure out the data set and analyze it, break it down and say, look, here's here's why it works and here's why we're changing the world and then um, there'll be a, an open comment period of course and then it will go to market and so my best guesstimation based on what I've heard from other people as well as well as from the CEO of Brainstorm is that in this time 24 months from now um, this thing is going to be in the market you know this thing is going to be available God willing at Kaiser scripts you know, it's going to be everywhere um, it's a complicated issue, though. It's a very complicated issue. So we need your help, friends. Um, we need your help in multiple ways. If you can donate, fantastic. If you can't, I understand. But maybe you can do this for us. Maybe you can um, help Olga by advocating um, for reform. Um, and and we'll we'll I'll do all the legwork for you. You know I'll. I'll give you the email addresses I'll give you the letters the form letters I'll give you the addresses shoot um, phone calls and letters that's the trick emails work too but emails delete right or reply with a canned response right um, it's pretty hard to ignore a phone call though right it's pretty well I mean I do it all the time <laughs> but um, you know People calling you, you talking to human beings, if you just call them and just read something out, I'll write the blurb for you. Um, or if you're willing to mail mail something to the people that I'll send you information, that would be very, very helpful. Uh, we're working, not we, but there's an advocacy group that's working towards um, making some moves here, hopefully in the next couple of months. But, but the FDA needs to hear from us. Donald Trump needs to hear from us and the, the specific people that need to hear from us. Again, I got all that information and I'm going to send it all out to you. So what we need your help with my friends is to help save this woman's life. Um, basically we need help so that we can come up with enough money to be able to take her to get alternative um, treatments in other countries. Um, until hopefully this neuron product gets approved and if the neuron product gets approved and there's other product too called copper ATSM product that's in phase two trials about to start this summer um, and that has been shown to do even more miraculous things if you know the neuron procedure coupled with the QATSM procedure coupled with a um, T-cell regulation procedure that I can talk about later it's a cocktail it's like three things that is going to help us cure AL. it's going to help us stop death um, and so I need your help if you can please give some money if you can't um, no worries just just help me uh, get the word out 
that we can save people's lives, you guys. 20,000 people get diagnosed. All There are 20,000 Americans right now that have ALS, at least. Thousands that are dying every single year. Like every 90 minutes, another person dies from ALS. And it is a terrifying, terrifying death. We're not talking about getting hit by a car. You know, that's tragedy too. I'm not downplaying that, but that's in an instant, right? And even though it's going to be a lifetime of heartache for the people that lost their loved ones, you know, the person who died, died in an instant. Um, ALS doesn't work like that, right? You just slowly lose everything until you're basically a marionette sitting on a chair. So we got to help reconnect these wires to these muscles. We got to, we can do it and it looks like it's possible now. It's not, it's not an oil. It's not, you know, we're not homeopathy is going to be important good nutrition is going to be really important of course you know that stuff is the basis of life but this stuff that i'm talking about is magic this is the real stuff um, and i want my wife to be the first person to survive als and not only survive it but to regain her functions and you can help us do it